0: This episode of Equity is presented by MetaLab. MetaLab designs and builds products for companies that are expecting massive growth. Slack, YouTube, and Uber are just a few of the startups that hired MetaLab on their way to becoming household names. They're the product agency that helped design the original version of Slack and the YouTube player that is still in use today. Last year, MetaLab collaborated with the founding teams at Neuralink and Pitch. Unlike a lot of other agencies, MetaLab doesn't claim to be full service. They do one thing, and they do it really well, and that's digital products. If you're ready to build a product for millions of people, then visit MetaLab.com. Tell them TechCrunch Equity sent you. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines, My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's Myriad and Fine Managing Editors. Danny, hello. If you're
1: listening to this, I am on vacation, which means I'm not answering email. So how is that different from any other day? Uh, (laughs) We also have (laughs) Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, how are you doing?
2: If you're listening to this, I am working on Startups Weekly and probably procrastinating email as well. And if you're listening to this,
0: I'm writing the Exchange Newsletter, and I haven't read email since Wednesday. So hey, it's all in the same boat. Listen, we have a packed show, actually a very exciting one, if I can be so bold. We're going to kick off with a thumbnail, if you will, on the NFT space. Something big has happened there. If you caught our Wednesday show, we really went deep on NFTs, but we're just going to touch on it today. Then we have the Coupon IPO. We have the Roblox direct listing. We have Coursera. We have Preply, not Preply, it's Preply. We also have the Dropbox Docsin deal. We're going to take a look at Zapier and MakerPad, and then a little bit of crypto. And we're going to wrap up with how to beat Google with Google's own brains. So let's get into it. Danny, breaking news though, out very recently. Something happened in the world of NFTs that you were shouting about before the show. Tell us and the people
1: what's going on. Well, we had the special Wednesday edition of Equity focused on non-fungible tokens, which you know are these licenses for art, for tickets, etc. Listen to the show if you want the actual explanation. That's not five words. But the big news yesterday on Thursday was that Beeple, a street artist who actually put up an artwork at Christie's, one of the top auction houses, sold his piece everydays the first 5000 days for 69.3 million dollars that makes him the third most expensive artist in the world after Jeff Koons and David Hockney we've talked about nft bubbles we obviously did the show on wednesday but this this scale of investment on a single token it really to me is transformative and way beyond the top shot and some of the other stuff we just talked about 48 hours ago.
0: How many times can we say Beeple before we break out into laughter? Because I'm struggling a little bit with that. Thank you, Jenny, for that. We're going to drop NFTs from now. We will get back to crypto in a little bit. But Natasha, we finally have pricing news on coupon, the South Korean e-commerce giant that had a kick butt 2020. What's the latest?
2: coupon is the largest IPO by a foreign company that we've had at least in the last seven years. So big news! It priced one dollar above its raise range and has raised four point six billion. Oof. Its fully diluted market value is sixty two point nine billion. But of course, it's not trading yet. So the story is still going.
0: It may start trading while we record this on Thursday. So if th- if that happens, we'll update you. But Danny, you are the South Korean expert on the show. I'm very curious if you're surprised by the enthusiasm from American investors for a South Korean company.
1: I mean, the irony is what was the largest IPO before this one was Alibaba, which is e-commerce logistics for China. So, you know, clearly when it comes to overseas companies doing well on the NYSE, it's e-com in Asia. But no, I look, I think uh, we've talked about Coupang in the past. I think it's a really strong debut.
2: Catherine Shu from our team wrote a really great piece about how Coupang is out-Amazoning Amazon, and one of the details in her piece was that a lot of its success was due to an early and heavy aggressive investment in logistics. When it was founded in 2010, there were no major logistics providers in South Korea, similar to what we have in the U.S. like FedEx or UPS. So it built its own infrastructure. So now to take out Coupon, a company needs to do that. And that's not simple to do.
1: I agree 100%. And I think this is a great example of a company that was may not brilliant in its model or idea. It was just applying the right rules to best practices at top speed.
0: I want to bounce a thesis off you guys that I just came up with. So this may be garbage. i maybe cut it out of the show if it's really dumb. But we talk a lot about the capex of cloud computing, how if you're going to compete in the world of cloud, you have to spend tens of billions of dollars building out data centers all over the world dealing with country-by-country regulation on on data storage and and security and all this stuff. And that's why we think about the hyper cloud. There's only a couple players in the space. There's Amazon, there's Microsoft, there's Alphabet, and then there's Alibaba, really. You could throw in a little bit of IBM and a little bit of DigitalOcean, whatever. But there seems to be a similarity to that level of CapEx and also building out e-com infra. Because when you think about Amazon, they're not just an e-commerce company. They have hundreds of thousands of employees. They have jets. They have tons of facilities. They have bought robotic companies to help them move, I don't know, the pencils you bought more close to the human. You can pick them up and put them in a box, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder if there's going to also be a diminishing ability for other players to come up in these spaces in countries like South Korea that have a coupon down the road. Danny, what do you think?
1: There are clear barriers to entry, and particularly if the leading company is doing extremely well. I and mean, I would argue all the companies you just listed are doing extremely well. Yep. It's next to impossible, right? And I think we're seeing the same thing with DoorDash, with Grocery. Like Once you have that network effect, and assuming you execute well in it, I mean, that's a huge caveat. If you're not giving great customer service, if you're not executing, if you're not delivering on time, fine. There's openings. But if you are executing well, there is no competition. You can't invest enough to overcome the barrier to entry that, you know, Amazon with more than a million employees is devoted to logistics and shipping.
2: And, you know, we're going to probably end the show on a similar note when we talk about a company that's going against a huge company and actually might have an easier time. But let's put a pin in it and let's talk about how Alex got Bloxburg into a headline. What happened this week, Alex? (laughs) So so everyone likes- It's called, called, my vacation
1: started early and I wasn't paying enough attention to the headlines on the site. (laughs) For
0: people who don't know, there's a company called Roblox. They make a game for kids and it's a bit like uh, interactive Legos or a different type of Minecraft and there's a lot of third-party developers on it. And if your kids play Minecraft, don't tweet me about it because everyone else already has. And so, yes, I've heard the jokes about how you should get free stock in the company because of how much money you give them. It's nice, but I've heard it. Our lovely editor, Walter, took my headline and worked into it a reference to Bloxburg, which is a game inside of the Roblox universe. I've never heard of it. Everyone else has and thought it was brilliant and it was giving me points for it, but I deserve no credit whatsoever. It should all go to Walter, who's tremendous. But critically, guys, Roblox is on the list today because the direct listing has direct listed. They did what IPOs always do, which is <laughs> skyrocketed higher. So after pricing at $45 a share, well, not pricing, but the reference price was $45 a share. It closed up, you know, like 60, 70%, whatever it was after its first day of trading. It's up again today. So the dynamics we've seen in the market of, you know, companies pricing their IPOs and then seeing great pops are not solved by direct listings. And it, here's the thing, Natasha, that it really kind of like got me thinking about this. They were valued at roughly, the reference price was roughly their last private round. They were about $29 in change. And then they come out the door and they, they're worth like 60, 70% more. Isn't that just the exact same issue that we've had with IPO pricing, undervaluing what the public markets might pay for it on day one? Haven't we just recreated the same crappy wheel?
1: I think this is actually a great example of a company that first was going to IPO, then took money, then was going to IPO, then pulled the IPO, then went direct listing. <laughs> and as crazy as it sounds, like I think the market didn't care. You know, what's actually nice here is that, like, strategically, they kind of just tried different things, see what worked. And, like, it wasn't held against them that they, like, had their one shot and they didn't shoot it right at the exact moment they shot it and therefore, like, the company died. So I, th- I think That's there's a, a little point. bit of that investment banking advice, like, you must get it right the first You don't. No one cares if it's a good growth stock.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes, Danny. Entirely correct. If you're Roblox, I mean, most you're- companies are not. And here's just—I don't disagree, but the context is in the later S-1A filings, we got to look at the company's Q4 performance. And Roblox grew 50% from Q2 to Q4 of last year at scale.
1: That's I, I, insane. I—I I feel what you're saying is—is is like if you're a good company, you have choice. That's exactly what I'm <laughs> saying. And my argument is—is that's—that's that's the kind of stuff that should be IPOing. <laughs> I mean, Danny, it's in almost a like world. or back yourself world. if you can't. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it is. It th- I do think though, it's so important. Like the way you choose to go public will not be what people remember you for yeah. years from now. What they'll remember you for is if you are a good company or not. We maybe all of us can overt dramatize a little bit about the actual way that someone might go. It's illustrative. So not digging on you, Alex. But no, no, I think no, no, it's no. like there's yeah. There, there's just so many different ways. I mean, I love how excited you get about direct listing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, someone's got to do it. So if this is getting a little <laughs> bit confusing, let me just quickly break everyone down with the numbers and go back in time. If you go back to February of 2020, Roblox's Series G valued the company at about $4 billion. Then this January, they raised more money at a roughly $30 billion valuation. And then they went through the direct listing process and were repriced again even higher. Now they're worth $40, $45 billion. So when we're talking about theft, we're talking about these 2020 Series G That was off by a factor of 10 or 11 compared to the company's actual value today. Now, of course, the company has appreciated in value since then, so it's not really fair. But certainly 11X in in 12, 13 months is insane. But let's move it on to something that is not just Roblox. In fact, there has been an EdTech IPO filing at last. Natasha, it's your moment.
2: It's my moment, guys. Oh, my God. Coursera filed its S1 a year after I started covering EdTech. So it's really been such a buildup because they're one of the first companies <laughs> that I quoted. <laughs> I quoted in my stories about like COVID reactions. But enough about me. The numbers that I want us to talk about first is Coursera saw a 59% increase in revenue from 2019 to 2020. So in 2020, it brought in $293.5 million in revenue compared to $184.4 million. And in terms of users, in 2019, Coursera had 46 million users. We did see the pandemic bump in numbers, finally, and in 2020, it had 77 million users. The sad part is, as Alex pointed out when we were going over the S1 filing, even on an adjusted EBITDA basis, which is a nice way to look at a company. Um, Alex has obviously <laughs> rubbed off on me, but looking <laughs> at it in that way, Coursera's losses still rose from 2019 to 2020, expanding from $26.9 million to $39.8 million. So I'm going to throw to Alex, making sense of those numbers, what was kind of like your one-line take on Coursera's actual numbers now that we have them?
0: I would say medium good. It's a quickly growing company that has a relatively small adjusted EBITDA loss as a percent of revenue. And what that means is, if you take a look at the way we think about its losses compared to how much revenue it has, it's not that bad. It's not losing fifty percent of its revenue. It's losing 13 14%. It to fourteen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somewhere in there, so it's not terrible. I don't like seeing companies lose more money as they grow. It to me implies a lack of operating leverage. But one thing Natasha, that you and I looked through was how the company's freemium offerings have performed. And what we saw was that the consumer side of things, the premium offering did a great job filling the funnel with uh, new consumer users, and it did a pretty good job bringing on a lot of new campuses. And the company said, we're going to try to convert those free enterprise campus users to paid customers. And so the question to me is, does that happen this year? And if so, maybe the growth ends up reducing the deficit as it kind of trades in its first couple of quarters. But I think there's still a question mark over the business about how much of the pandemic bump in usage it can convert into actual long-term revenues.
2: Totally. And you know, one thing that Coursera had going for it before the pandemic was it was one of the MOOCs, the massive open online course providers that was dead and no one really thought about it. Then the New York Times infamously wrote a piece saying the MOOCs are back and Coursera is leading the charge. And now that we can actually see the numbers, my belief in the company is less in its old core offering, which is its consumer content offering. And it's in these newer products it's launched, such as its degrees product. Its degrees product is basically like you can attend university on Coursera, pay X amount of money and get a degree that will work in the real world. That product did not require any additional content uplift from Coursera. And it's also one of its cleanest products in terms of margins. So looking at Coursera now, you'd think that its future path to profitability because it's not profitable will be more in its smart repackaged content than doing a massive open online here, take a ukulele class courses that it used to kind of be branded by.
1: I mean, I, I scan through the S one. First of all, the complexity of its revenue model is actually kind of nuts. It's consumer <laughs> enterprise degrees. It's like all these different things: licenses, certificates, it's like every you know. And, and, and in some ways, it's okay, right? Because at its core, you have a core set of content, and then you're repackaging that content different ways for different consumers. That's actually relatively cheap. What bothers me though is if you look at the 2020 numbers, it's basically an ARPU problem. You have 77 million users, 300 million in revenue. You're talking about four bucks. I'm doing my math right. And I'm pretty sure I'm doing my math right. It's about 4 bucks a user in annual revenue for an education product. Let me compare that to the tuition, let's say, at Harvard Business School, which all-inclusive is now more than $100,000 per year. Now, I know that that's maybe an exaggeration and extreme, but the point here is, like, this is the edtech problem in a nutshell. 4 bucks a user. I know most of those users are unpaid. You know, it's probably tens of millions who get it for free, and a couple people are paying. So, I mean, the, the paid ARPU is obviously higher than the whole mass of people who don't pay anything. But it's a huge problem when you compare it to traditional education where people spend thousands for a college tuition or whatever the case may be.
0: And that's the question about the freemium offering. Will the funnel that was so filled on the enterprise and consumer side last year in the pandemic, will that convert this year? And, you know, I I don't know. I I don't know enough about the ed tech world to really answer that question, but that's probably what investors have to ask themselves. Because if they're going to see strong conversion, they're going to see pretty bonkers revenue growth this year. If they're not, it's deficits as far as the eye can see. So The company turns on a couple of interesting points. We need to move on to some smaller rounds, but Natasha and I did write about this over on Extra Crunch. It's called Five Takeaways from the Coursera IPO Filing. Because it's on EC, only some of you can read it, but if you need to get a huge discount, equity is a code, it'll work. All right, moving on. Preply, not Preply. Preply's put together a, a very interesting Series B. <laughs> Tell us about that.
2: Preply, which was founded in 2013 as a language learning tutoring marketplace, has now raised two back-to-back rounds within 12 months of each other. So it last raised in March 2020, a $10 million Series A, and then this month has closed a $35 million. Series B, co-led by Owl Ventures, which is the EdTech fund that is backed by Jews, one of the most valuable EdTech companies, if not the most valuable, and a ton of other huge players. So an Owl Ventures investment is a big signal. The company has found its stride, actually, not simply due to the pandemic, but by adding a more vetted tutoring process into its Ah. platform. Before, it used to be like, oh, you know Spanish? Natasha wants to learn Spanish. Let's just connect you and we'll take a little cut out of the middle. Every tutoring marketplace has now realized you can't just be the middleman. You (laughs) have to do a lot more than that. So they started vetting. And I thought it was really crazy to see language learning getting money this late in the game because it's congested. Danny, I know you have thoughts on language learning. So tell us about it.
1: I think tutoring is the right place for ed tech, right? It's it's always going to be the more personalized, custom work that's going to get the value, I think, in ed tech. But You know, one of the things that scares me about Preply, not just in foreign language, but in general, is these tutoring marketplaces have raised so much money. There are so many tutoring marketplaces. I'm thinking of Wyzant. I think there's what, Brainly. There's a couple of others in this space. There's Preply. You have Babbel, I think, also in foreign language. That is where the value is, but there's just so much supply that I wonder how long you can kind of sustain the high prices you're seeing on a lot of these marketplaces.
0: There's also so much demand. And so it's a big open question because yeah. one reason why I wanted to have this company in the script today was they dropped some numbers about how much growth they've seen. And at the Series A a year ago, they had done 2 million booked lessons. Not bad if you presume a reasonable price point for each booked lesson. Since then, they've reached 10 million. So they've done 8 million in the last year. they did in 4X their aggregate to date since their Series A 12 months ago. That's, that's pretty crazy. I wonder, Danny, if it's going to be like the software market, it's just bigger than we think. And so there's more room for players to stay up. Like this is the OKR software space all over again. A year ago, all those OKR software startups raised. I thought half of them would die. They all grew by 300% and raised more money. Oh, well, OK. It's much a bigger market than I thought. So I'm curious about that. But let's keep scooting. Let's talk about, oh, this is one of my favorite things. Danny, when did you get your very first doc sent?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Interesting question. I, I bet I got one pretty early. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. I, like what, what, 20, I, 2014, 20. I mean, I don't literally know. They just started materializing. And we used to get PDFs, beautiful PowerPoint presentations, then we had to start logging in. And, and as a VC, you had to get used to the idea that people are tracking every second you spend on every slide. So you open 10 Docsends at once, slowly like cycle through each of them to make sure all founders and they, like think that you're actually reading it for 25 minutes and not the two minutes you actually do for each. But Doxen had news this week that they sold to Dropbox for 165 million bucks. And that's sort of in line with Dropbox's M and A strategy. They also bought HelloSign, which is in sort of the signature e-signature space, and similar to some competitors like Box, which have bought SignRequest and PandaDoc. All the cloud providers are trying to offer a little bit above the storage layer into the application layer, offering higher quality services, presumably higher margin. But what I want to emphasize here is DocSend had only raised fifteen point three million and sold for sixteen point five, so about a ten to eleven x. Sold for one hundred and sixty five. One hundred sixty five. What did I say? Did I say million? 5 which would you be less impressive oh that's the wrong number that's a, that what? would be a bad outcome
2: <laughs> i swear i just hear it i hear it and i heard it right but danny said it wrong which makes me think things. it was just so funny here. Like, they
0: raised 15.3
1: they sold for 16.5 it's an amazing outcome i'm like wait no pause pause one thing you learn in the vc world is the decimal place and where it is really matters a lot that's a good rule in finance in general <laughs> but 165 million exit to me it's like a really solid quality return it is a niche product i don't think it's ever expanded widely out of tech or maybe out of sales and some other categories, 50 employees uh, from DocuSend will go to Dropbox. So like overall, I think a really solid return and the kind of return that most VCs don't care about anymore, frankly, because you have fund sizes that just 165 million, you own 20%, 32 million, not a big deal. Yeah, but
0: DocuSend did have 17,000 customers. Now, some of these are gonna be very small ACV, but you know what Dropbox did was buy a product with intense user engagement. They can tie that to their, their core product. This feels, and I'm gonna really butcher this analogy, don't overthink this, A little bit like Facebook buying Instagram. The big thing is buying the smaller, (laughs) hotter thing for not that much money in hopes that, oh, Danny's losing (laughs) shit. Okay.
2: I'll add one note about Docsend. The CEO worked for Dropbox as an intern in 2010, pitched the company to Drew Houston, the CEO of Dropbox. Houston was like, it's cool. You should start it and has now bought the company years later, but probably could have just incubated it and kept it for free. Yeah. So I love when that happens.
0: (laughs) We are seeing all of these storage players diversify. I mean, if you think about the old days when there was Ignite, Box and Dropbox, all kind of beating heads to hold all your corporate docs. They've all now gone to e-signature, security, governance, and like some document work. I mean, the first time I think I met Aaron Levy was when they bought Crocodoc back in the day. I still have that T-shirt somewhere. But, I mean, they've been at this for a long time. yeah can they really expand a c v and keep growth in the business? Yeah,
1: we'll see the lesson here is okay, crocodoc, Panda Doc, send. I mean, as long as you have Doc in the title, you're bound to to sell something. but I, as you pointed out, you know a lot of the non major cloud company I mean, talking about earlier we were talking about Microsoft Azure Google Cloud, Amazon, you know these massive winners. Dropbox and Box have suffered a lot and that's why uh, I forget it was was a value act which were the vulture funds went after Box recently not Vista not one, I... one of these folks are trying to go out on the board do the same thing all these companies are looking for higher ACV better ways to create margin etc but Talking about finding new ways to build value on different things, Zapier, or I've been told is Zapier, bought MakerPad as its first acquisition this week. And Alex, you have the story there.
0: I do. It's in Starboard Value is the one trying to take over the
1: Oh, yes. The Star Trek people, (laughs) as I like to think of them.
0: All right. Anyways, uh, it is pronounced Zapier. Danny's correct. I was on the horn with the CEO of Zapier and uh, I asked him, I'm like, bro, I always forget, is it Zapier or Zapier? And he goes, it's Zapier. Like Zapier makes you happier. And I was like, that's going to stick in my head for a long time. So now everyone knows how to pronounce it. Here's the thing though. Zapier has bought MakerPad and we have a couple thoughts about this. One is how big has Zapier gotten under the radar? Cause it hasn't raised money really in a thousand years. So people don't talk about it too much. And uh, why did it buy MakerPad? And so on the first front, it's reached 140 million ARR, 400 employees, Very impressive company, mostly self-funded, so we know it's not torching capital. It's found an amazing niche and a huge SMB buy-in across many, many verticals and use cases. Honestly, I hate to be nice, but it's pretty impressive. And MakerPad. Now, this is the fun thing. Genny. you were thinking about this as ed tech, which I think is right, but tell people why you think that.
1: MakerPad's goal was to not be a no-code tool. It was a pipeline for people to understand how to use no-code tools in their own work. So think of it as like the eHow or wiki-how of no code, right? So they had all these recipes. Hey, here's how to connect this to this. Use your Zapier with your Airtable to connect through Bubble in order to do like a business transformation or whatever the case may be. So in many ways, it was like an educational learning product, but had the, the beauty that once you had those sorts of customers in the pipeline, you can refer them, you can start to guide them to different tools. It becomes an ad marketplace. It was actually a really smart kind of strategic place to be. It makes total sense to me that Zapier is buying them. Zapier. Zapier. Zapier, sure, <laughs> for the Parisians listening. But I, I will say, I think Zapier's biggest issue is is onboarding, right? Like it has a lot of power. It's all these recipes, but like you have to train people to use them, you know, give them the creativity to think what the potential is of this technology. And that's always been the no-code challenge. Natasha, does that pass muster with
0: you as an tech product?
2: I think so. MakerPad has the similar consumer branding and love that EdTech companies that want to sit on top instead of being part of the actual creation of content it it gives me Newzella vibes it aggregates content into packages and then people can kind of come to MakerPad and figure out how to use low code and no code as someone who doesn't understand low code and no code super well MakerPad feels like an essential tool to like not be weirded out or feel awkward about how to navigate that world as it grows bigger the thing about Zapier buying it is Zapier feels like one of those companies that is just really loved by all my friends I told people we're talking about Zapier on our podcast today and they were so excited So getting into a MakerPad tool that's a little buzzy, but also has been getting a lot of attention, feels like a really good culture harmony as well.
0: Yeah. And then the question is, why do MakerPad sell? And I think the answer is, I bet it didn't monetize spectacularly well. I bet it had a lot of good buy-in amongst the community, beloved, important, but I bet it just wasn't exactly super profitable. And so what do you do? Ben Tossel told me, do you go raise VC? Maybe. Or do you sell into this enormous company where you'll have a financial cushion to pursue your education expansion dreams? So it it makes sense to me, Natasha. Just briefly before we move on, Brianne Kimmel is putting together a fund for no code.
2: Yeah. So Brianne Kimmel, the connection with her to Makerpad is she's a huge lover of the platform. She actually is working with the CEO of Makerpad, who has his own rolling fund, is sharing deals with him in some way. So think of them as like kind of this like cohort of people that are betting on no
1: code blob. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's really a blob. Anyways, Brianne Kimmel, Work-Life Ventures, filed paperwork this past week about raising a $60 million fund too. She last closed fund one in 2019 and was between 5 to 10000000 million.
0: I'm talking to, I think, Brianne, Wade from Zapier, and maybe also Ben from Makeup Ed on Clubhouse next Wednesday because oh, nice. my life is a cliche. All right, let's move on. Danny, we are going to do the world's briefest thing on crypto. I mean, literally a minute here. <laughs> so uh, PayPal bought Curve. <laughs> for some amount of money.
1: Briefly tell us why we care. PayPal has made forays to go into the crypto world for a while. Obviously, crypto becomes very important as more and more people buy and sell and trade using crypto. And PayPal wants to be on the cutting edge. They bought Curve this week. There were a couple different numbers thrown around. One source put it at between 200 and 300 million. One source put it under 200 million. Guess which source came from the company and which one came from PayPal? (laughs) But what Curve does is they're a cryptocurrency security company. Now, I got to admit, I went to their website. It's Curve.co. And they described it as, quote, a cloud-based wallet that gives you bulletproof protection, instant availability, and total autonomy over all your digital assets, powered by revolutionary cryptography. And I think at least four of those words are usually my red alert flags of, like, (laughs) what does bulletproof digital security mean? You can't shoot digital security. This is much like whenever I hear a company say they
0: have military-grade encryption. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. Right,
1: with with military-grade. What they do is they handle your private keys and they solve the private key problem for cryptocurrency. So if you own Bitcoin, if you own Ethereum, the biggest challenge is you have this digital key, which is literally just bits. And if anyone gets those bits, they own your assets. They get around that using multi-party encryption and a variety of other sort of mathematically proven techniques. But they work as infrastructure. They work with a lot of the big name cryptocurrencies. So Corbett and eToro and Falcon X. So it makes total sense that PayPal would kind of buy them and integrate them into the infrastructure.
2: I think about 30% of owned Bitcoin is inaccessible because of lost keys and passwords.
1: Even beyond hacking right? Yeah. It's just like losing your key. This has been my theme on all of our discussions on equity for the last couple of weeks, which is just, you know, the infrastructure is getting better for this. We're getting better, more solid results. People aren't losing their keys. It's not Mount Gox anymore, like 2014 or 2015 when all the craziness was going on and the magic of the gathering online exchange. Now we're getting to industrialize, you know, quality engineered products that are actually designed to solve the problem. So very, very strong there. And then finally, this week, we have what I think is a really compelling company. We actually covered it back in our anti-antitrust club discussion a couple of months ago for those who are longtime equity listeners. But Natasha, huge funding news from Neva.
2: Neva has raised $40 million led by Greylock and Sequoia Capital and is now valued at $300 million. It's a search engine without data tracking and ads. And I feel like I could pause there and we could devolve. But it gets even more interesting because it's built by nearly a dozen ex-Googlers, including the man behind Google's 115 billion advertising division, who ultimately left in I think only 2018. His name is Sridhar Ramaswamy. I mean, yeah, what do you guys think? There's so much to get into here.
0: I'm so excited about this. Like literally the people at Google who saw the same things that I hate about what's happening in Google search engine got pissed off about them and they're leaving. To go make their own search engine, and I can pay them between five and ten bucks a month to leave me alone and not give me ads. I'm trying to figure out what about this I'm not absolutely madly in love with.
1: I think it's an ambitious bet. I think the question is: I mean, obviously DuckDuckGo has been trying to be the privacy search engine for what six years, seven years, mostly using Bing's technology. There, there's something tricky here, right? Which is ultimately when we talk about network effects. I mean, we started the show talking about e-commerce and logistics. We're ending the show with another monopoly and another network effects business. Search is part. Now, granted, Google's former head of search is now at Neva, right? Their head of sales also at Neva. So like, you're actually getting some of the best leaders out of Google running this company. So maybe they're onto something. I just got to be honest, though, like, I just don't know how you compete in this market. They're already up to, I want to say, what was it, 50, 60 people? You know, there's a reason thousands of people actually program the single search engine that is Google. And most of those people have either PhDs or masters in computer science from some of the best natural language processing and web retrieval and search Cool. So I just think it's a really, really intractable problem. We'll, I, I want them to succeed. I really hope they succeed. But I'm skeptical.
2: Totally. I mean, I think if their go to market starts and stops at asking people to spend five to ten dollars per month, I don't think it will win. I think it's something really creative to get in front of people, whether that's really cool partnerships or selling to entire companies that built around that. For me, I'm like, I feel like you need to do more than just be like, we're a better Google because I don't think enough people care about ads. Like Alex, I know you were saying that it's something that really excites you, but I think like so many consumers do not care that people are scraping their emails, using their ads, blah, blah, blah. Like I probably wouldn't spend five to $10 even though I believe in the importance of it.
0: It's not just the privacy point though. Like if you use Google now, it tries to help you and it fails. It's overly burdened with ads. Its UI is clunky. Its results are not as good as they used to be. And so what Google has done is chipped off bits of its soul over time, traded those for higher ad click-through rates, and made the overall experience worse because the company has no other viable businesses that generate any revenue whatsoever, and so search has had to carry the revenue torch for the entire alphabet empire for so long. If you can get away from that devil's bargain, you can build something better. And here's the thing, privacy is great, but also I just want to have pure search results. I don't want Google trying to trick me in a new way this year to click on an ad.
1: I will say two things. One is I completely agree with Natasha. No one cares about privacy. I think if there's one conclusive evidence from the last 20 years, literally no one cares about privacy. No one ever checks. I care. No one ever buys products that way. People don't spend extra money to avoid privacy. Like people want free stuff. That is why ads continue to exist is no one wants to pay for things. B. The biggest challenge in search, which again, I think Neva is going to run into at some point is let's say you want to get better search results. It's an arms race. You know, you have a bunch of publishers who are also trying to get their worst crap sites in front of your eyes on the site. You know, SEO is a massive industry. Maybe this is where the monopoly actually gets better. I mean, if there was five search engines, you just couldn't optimize for all of them at the same time. But because there's one search engine, you know, everyone's trying to figure out Google's algorithm and prioritize the right stuff. So it's just a constant back and forth, and there's no real way to solve that.
0: Wrong, because this is running on Bing, which actually is a reasonable search engine now. <laughs> It is. It's fine. It, 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 like So they're not trying to build from the ground up a web scraper that's going to go out and find every single web page. They're going to lean on Microsoft, which has a couple of dollars and has spent a decade, Natasha, building
2: Bing out. That's actually a really important detail. So I'm glad you said that. The last point I'll make in case the listeners weren't feeling meta or that tech is a flat circle enough. When Google started, the co-founders were like, we do not want to have an ad driven model to help our search product work. They eventually became billionaires off of that same ad search model. So And then it's-
0: they left before they had to really sell their soul. But guys, listen, I have to stop as we are dramatically over time. This has been Equities Friday episode with the News Rundown. We are back Monday morning for a weekly kickoff. And if I can give a little bit of a, a foretaste, next Wednesday's show is going to be Kick Butt. So stick around for that and we'll see you all then. Goodbye.